what every sinner needs to know is this reign of God is upon us to heal our brokenness, to bring forgiveness and restoration and healing. And once more, this isn't merely so that we can go to glory. It includes that. It means living a whole life now before God's face for his glory. Welcome to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss everything from Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. This is episode 80, and I'm your host, Jared Luchibor. Thank you for tuning in. Last week, Dr. Beach kicked off a series on the Kingdom of God, where he offered a biblical sketch of what the Bible means by the Kingdom of God, outlined some aspects of the doctrine of the Church as it relates to that subject, and began to look at how the idea of the Kingdom was manifest at creation and then lost with the fall. Well, in today's episode, he now considers the period of redemption, where the Lord embarks upon the work to reestablish the kingdom, to regain his reign of fellowship through his redemptive and healing rule over the broken creation. Of course, this finds its focus in God's fallen image bearers, but as Dr. Beach will point out, finally embraces the entire scope of God's creation. Here's Dr. Beach. Speaking of redemption, John, the gospel writer, tells us that the Word became flesh, and the Word by whom all things were made, that Word, the Word who is from the beginning, the Word who was with God, who is God, this Word, who's the seed of the woman, who brings light into the darkness, the one who grants grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ, John 1.17, and and through him, God brings to fulfillment the great work of liberation, which is signaled in the reestablishment of his kingdom, his reign. Not a providential reign, but a healing-saving reign where creation's offered back uh, to him as properly belonging to him. In the person of Jesus Christ, then, the decisive battle is waged against Satan against his demons, against the kingdom of darkness, and the decisive victory is realized. Uh, This means then that uh, Christ, who is the kingdom center point, the the epigee is him as the king, uh, he is its embodiment, its instrument. He proclaims it. He inaugurates this reign of God. He's the king of that kingdom. And you notice then that Jesus goes about proclaiming the kingdom. First, he proclaims the kingdom. The gospel of Mark, as we noted, uh, the times fulfilled, the kingdom at hand, repent, believe in the gospel. This reign of God is here. It's of great importance that we see this, that to live under this reign requires faith in him, repentance from our sins. We we always, uh, these go hand in hand together. His grand announcement Whatever a sinner needs to know is this reign of God is upon us to heal our brokenness, to bring forgiveness and restoration and healing. And once more, this isn't merely so that we can go to glory. It includes that. That's that's magnificent. But it means living a whole life now before God's face for his glory. One way Jesus talks about this is... Uh, 
to speak of the kingdom as inaugurated. Of course, he doesn't use that word, but he says the kingdom is at hand, it's imminent, or that it's now in our midst, crashing like a wave on the shores of the world, sweeping out to sea that which presents an obstacle to his righteous cause. This at-handedness of the kingdom simply means that it waits its fulfillment, its fullness better, uh, of Christ's ministry, so that with his cross and his resurrection and his ascension and his session, uh, the, the, the fullness of that kingdom can commence. But already in his earthly ministry, it's upon us, it's in our midst and in our hearts, the reign of God in our hearts. And so Jesus preaches and he performs miraculous signs and healings, and he calls these manifestations of reign of God. Not just manifestations that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, but man, that, certainly, but manifestations of the healing, uh, redemptive, fellowship-restoring reign of God right now. Because broken legs, crippled legs are supposed to walk, blind eyes are supposed to see. That's how he intended us. That's how he made us. This is the healing reign of God put to manifestation. And Christ himself is that ultimate reality, the, the, the focal point, the source of this, because he's the seed of the woman who saves. He's the one who brings the Old Testament promise to fulfillment. And he's the one who will usher in a new heaven and a new earth why even bother with that if the kingdom of God isn't inclusive of that? It's also noteworthy that he proclaims the gospel of God for this kingdom, because of the fall, is about good news for the broken. It brings healing and fellowship with God himself. There is a changing of our hearts, a mending of our lives, Inclusive with that, the healing of the sick and the putting to right, right order that which is broken. Now, when you talk about all of that, we see that this kingdom is on the way and is coming further and further to manifestation. But to really talk about it, you have to talk about the king of the kingdom. And of course, that's Jesus Christ, the king of the kingdom. The, the, the king who uh, gives the church the keys of the kingdom in his visible absence. The church, as in its uh, institutional form, empowered and called to exercise those gospel keys, those kingdom keys that open the door to glory and close it to unbelief, glory to faith, un uh, damnation, finally, for unbelief. So that those counted as belonging to the kingdom are those counted who've come under the reign of the king. The church, uh, thus, is composed of believers, and kingdom citizens are those under the reign of this king as his church. Now, it needs to be said that when Christ extends his authority, his reign over all aspects of life, our marital life and business life and educational life and recreational life, because we're under him, we live for him. Of course, this is a mixed bag. 
Of course, this side of glory, the extent and permanency of his will will be fluctuating and precarious, from our perspective at least. It will be unstable. It will be inconsistent. Every Christian life is unstable and inconsistent. There's backslidings. There's a time in which the church is very faithful and then a time in which it slides in the way of unbelief. There's a time and a place in which it flourishes and then missteps follow. And a generation comes about that's not faithful like a prior generation. So when we talk about the reign of God, we're not talking about one long march. The kingdom of God is one big march, like a big growing tree that uh, never has any dead branches that need trimming, never has any setbacks, never has any opposition. Quite the opposite. Christ the king finds opposition. And sometimes his own people aren't obedient to him. But what's clear is the king of this kingdom is the one who reigns and all is for him. A particular interest here is Colossians 1, verses 13 through 29. Uh, One of the most glorious passages, really, that depict Christ, uh, describe how he's related to creation and redemption simultaneously because there he is shown to be Lord and King as Savior, as Messiah. Now, of course, this side of his resurrection and ascension, believers uh, rightly see the Lord's reign coming to ascendancy, and uh, that's all according to his grace. The Lord who announced this arrival of kingdom of God makes it itself an ongoing reality. But Colossians is particularly helpful in helping us see that he's the royalty, and as his children, we're royalty who live under this reign. So why would we live under the reign of any other? Or why would we divorce Christ as Messiah from our hearts when we're going about the business of making a living or raising our children, but only invite him as Lord of uh of ourselves, of our salvation, or of our Sunday, for example. The apostles quite clear in Colossians that uh, the Christ is the image, well, the, the image he presents is of one exalted sitting at the right hand of the Father in his session, if you will, gloriously resurrected, ascended, and note these words. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, Note this, for by him all things were created, that's reminiscent of John 1, by him all things were created in heaven on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or earth, all things were created through him and for him, he's before all things, in him all things hold together, in him all things hold together, he's the head of the body, the church, he's the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In everything. What part of everything doesn't mean everything? For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This is a vision in which you cannot pinch down redemption to saved souls for glory The world, I'm just passing through, the world can be given to the devil, 
And uh, meanwhile, Christ has no interest in that which is properly his, the creation itself. All things were created through him. All things were created for him. Verse 16, for him. Well, I don't think the church lives out the implications of that as it should. The one who's before everything and then everything that is, is created through and for him. As such, then, he's built the church. We are the beginning of the first fruits of blessedness. And we need to think about how that might be manifest, even as inadequately as it might be manifest in our lives today. We don't stop trying to live a Christian life because we don't live a perfect Christian life. We don't cease to worship because we don't worship perfectly. We don't cease to repent, even though our repentance is imperfect. So why should we cease to try to live under and manifest Christ's lordship in all of life just because it's going to fall short and have inconsistencies or setbacks? No, uh, we don't think that way at all. Uh, It's quite important that we not prune Christ's victory to a nub or conceive of his triumph redemptively as gathering a few scraps, a small collection of souls saved called the church. Gloriously, it includes souls saved called the church, but also glorious is that it includes the church living out in the world under his reign, manifesting that reign, pressing his claims wherever a curse is found. And it's found in a lot of places, is it not? It's found in the home, in marriage, in education, in government. We look around. We don't like what we see happening politically, perhaps, where we feel threatened by civil authorities or the loss of certain freedoms and rights as we've come to know them. Well, indeed, it's up to the Lord to grant us and keep these blessings, but it's up to us as Christian citizens within a land that gives us such freedoms and such opportunities to press the claims of that which is right. The unbeliever doesn't put his unbelief on the shelf when he's out into the world. So why would the believer put his or her faith on a shelf when they're going forth out into the world? The devil doesn't cry uncle saying, oh, that's not turf for me and for my reign. So why uh, would the believer say about the Christ, oh, he's uninterested, it's not turf. There's sectors of life, of learning, and the like uh, of right vocation in which he takes no interest. Uh, This is all quite mistaken. Now, I know sometimes there's been the temptation to a kind of triumphalism where you press the claims of of Christ merely by the act of Christians participating in a given field of endeavor. There, we've claimed it for Christ, and so it is. Of course, that's not true. Because what we claim for Christ might be claimed in an inadequate way, a faulty way, a disobedient way, just like the Christian life itself and uh, its various dimensions has its imperfections. What you don't say is, well, I won't, I'll just as well not live a Christian life. I'll live a life for Jesus on Sunday and the devil can have the rest of the week. Or I'll just make common cause with unbelief in all the other endeavors of life. This is all quite mistaken, because God's will infiltrates every area of life, just as the devil 
and unbelief and curse does. And so the reign of God comes to undo this curse. Now, shifting gears for a moment, we probably need to talk about the already and not yet of the kingdom of God. The already and the not yet. Because you might be thinking, well, if the kingdom of God has come and is being manifest, there sir, it sure seems to be meager or small or not very obvious. Uh, well, it's important that we see that though the kingdom or reign of God has been inaugurated, it's arrived in part, it is very far from having reached its pinnacle in its consummation. That's, that's the language of the already, the now of the kingdom of God over against what it's still reaching and stretching toward, the full consummation, the not yet of the kingdom of God. This is a longstanding distinction that many biblical scholars have recognized, especially in the New Testament, the significance of that with the coming of Christ, a new age is dawn, and yet the coming of that age is far from its full arrival. Meanwhile, the old age hangs on as well. Uh, so an old age and the age to come, it's quite important that we see that's exactly where the battles raged. A believer is defined as that, uh, as a person who already has eternal life and yet waits to live eternally in perfection. A believer is one already justified and yet still struggles with sin. There's even uh, language in the scripture already sanctified and yet putting on holiness is an ongoing an effort but one day will reach its fullness. So this kingdom of God belongs to the age to come. Perhaps a way of thinking about it is to think of the future folding back onto the present. That where we're headed is already come back upon us in some degree so that we're already experiencing adoption as children. We're already being delivered from our old nature, already forgiven and reconciled, already indwelt by the Spirit. This is already. The old age is not that which to we, that which believers belong to, but the old age, the old regime is what we're liberated from, translated from. And yet we still live in this old regime under this age, having the foretaste, the first fruits of the age to come. First fruits, though, aren't the full harvest. And maybe the simplest illustration for this is the difference between D-Day and V-Day. On June 6, 1944, the Allied forces invaded the German stronghold on the beaches of Normandy. We, we know that as D-Day. And with the success of D-Day, we knew that Hitler and Germany and, the, and those forces were all doomed. And yet, 11 months of hard fighting still commenced. Finally, on May 5, 1945, the Germans laid down their arms that was V-Day, the victory day. Well, so it is with the coming of Christ. His coming is a D-Day. It spells the devil's doom. It inaugurates the kingdom of God. It gives us the already of his reign being manifest. But we're far from having arrived at V-Day. But that day is sure to come. The devil's doom is sure. 
and we're promised as Christ's bride a new heaven and a new earth. And indeed, we'll get there because God will make it happen. Lord willing, next time in Dr. Beach's last installment, he will address the question of the relationship between the church and the kingdom of God and the implications of this vision of the kingdom for the Christian in the world. Stay tuned for that next time. For more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.